Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk and Happy New Year. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. We're here this afternoon coming up on our 29th anniversary together. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. Also, you may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download podcasts of our brief previous shows. You can also go to the free app SoundCloud and listen there as well. And this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's always a terrific idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour. I take today's calls first, then today's texts, and then pick up on any texts that I have not fully answered in the past. That is not the case today, so we have a clean slate, an opportunity to listen to me bloviate for the next hour, or an opportunity for you to call or text 512-836-0590. Here is a text. Let me just see. Okay. Carl, you have been talking about bonds lately. Yes, I have. Specifically, the importance of older guys like me (laughs) diversifying into this asset class. You have also touched on your preference of active management. What would be a fair expense ratio? I think that management of bonds are more intensive than stocks. Typically, in my... Well, let me just go back and and for the benefit of the rest of our listeners. Um, I have been a skeptic of bonds for several years not because I think bonds are somehow bad, but only because we had this amazing 40-year run of declining interest rates. Now, obviously, it didn't happen every year, but our benchmark 10-year Treasury peaked with a yield of excess of 15% in 1981 and bottomed at a little over 1%. And when interest rates fall, bond prices rise. So bonds were a terrific investment for a long time because not only did you get the current income, but you also got the appreciation of the value of the bonds. And that really showed up if you were an investor in bond mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. But as rates fell, the likelihood that they would continue to fall became increasingly limited. And I found that one of the benefits of bonds being a cushion in falling stock markets, where it's going to be not as nearly as attractive if you're buying bonds at 2% or 2.5% yield to maturity, because it doesn't take much of a move upward in rates to really crush the value of those bonds. And so I really was pretty much preaching to stay light on bonds. And in fact, if you're a long-term listener, you know that after many, many years of skepticism about gold, I added gold to uh, a, port- a balanced portfolio, a, myth- a mythical balanced portfolio, as it were. And last year, I changed my tune and became uh, interested again in bonds. And the reason is very straightforward. And that is the Fed had the sharpest increase in the Fed funds rate, which affects interest rates, in about 20 years. And as a result, I thought bonds became much more attractive. 
because even though I couldn't call, nor could anyone else call the precise moment when it's time to buy bonds, it seemed to me that when the 10-year Treasury was at 4% or 4.5% and even up to 5%, that you had a lot less price risk in those bonds than when the 10-year Treasury was at 1.5%. So yes, I have been more optimistic and more positive on bonds, to your point. And I have said that I like active management versus passive management. And again, if you're a regular listener, you know about this. But passive management would be the uh, the desire to, the extent possible, match a particular benchmark. So, for example, the the most popular bond benchmark is the Bloomberg Aggregate b- Benchmark, and you can buy an exchange-traded fund, iShares symbol AGG, that does its best to mirror the performance of that benchmark. It's like buying the Spiders SPY for the S&P 500, but for bonds. And then the, my understanding, the largest bond fund, the Vanguard Total Bond Market, the ETF, <coughs> the symbol BND, uh, also seeks to do that. And that's I'm not opposed to that. I've just listened to enough portfolio managers over the decades that I think there are opportunities in the bond market uh, because if you give within within the shall we say the guardrails of a particular fund, you give them the opportunity where they see value rather than trying to match a benchmark. Maybe they think there's value in agency mortgage-backed securities or non-agencies, or maybe they think that shortening maturities will be more attractive than lengthening maturities. So that's the reason I'm a fan of active management. And bond funds may take more management. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I will say that they typically have lower expense ratio than uh, some actively managed funds. So I think you want something pretty significantly under 1% to answer your question. And also, I would say there's no reason, in my view, whether you're an old guy, like you say you are or not, to stretch for yield. I'm not a big fan of high-yield bond funds, and it's not because I think they're bad. I think you have to ask yourself, why are you buying them? If you're buying them and you understand that they're very positively correlated to your equity sleeve of your portfolio, then that's okay with me. But don't be surprised when we have a bear market for equities or we have a recession that those when stocks go down, that those funds are not going to help you because they're very, the last time I checked, a perfect correlation is 1.0 and they were something like 0.85. So I look at high-yield bonds, if I'm going to allocate to them, as being part of an equity allocation rather than a fixed income allocation. It's just that a bigger part of their return doesn't come from appreciation, but it comes from current income. So if you're buying bonds as a more conservative position in your portfolio, I think you want to own investment-grade bonds. If If you make a whole lot of taxable income, that puts you, say, in the 37% marginal tax bracket, it's worth your considering then tax-exempt municipal bond funds. But for the vast majority of investors, and certainly for people in tax-deferred 
accounts like 401ks and IRAs, then you're going to be buying taxable bonds. I like what Morningstar calls core bonds or core plus as the building block. If I have enough money and allocation to bonds, I like three different strategies. I like the core bond, which comes very close in terms of its duration, and that means interest sensitivity to the Bloomberg Ag. Then I like a shorter-term fund, still investment grade. And then I do like a multi-sector, and I'm using Morningstar categories, a multi-sector bond fund, which gives the bond manager a broader, shall we say, a broader it's more like going to a buffet instead of ordering a specific thing off the menu. Gives her or him a, a broader opportunity set. They can have some high-yield bonds, but they're not like a high-yield bond fund. So if I, had, if I had the perfect situation, I'd have similar amounts in a short fund, a core fund, and a multi-sector fund and keep the expense ratios under 1%. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. It's time for me to take a break. 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. Do you think that private equity is a reasonable asset class to include in a broadly diversified long-term portfolio? If so, is there a good way to get exposure to private equity without the complexity and illiquidity of traditional private equity investments? And have a great 2024. Thank you. So for everybody else, this is a, a frankly a sophisticated question. Private equity as an asset class frequently has been used by endowments, foundations, and institutional investors. The idea is you give the general partner money, and they're kind of two, at least two different types of private equity. They invest in existing businesses and then use the money to grow those businesses and then intend to and hope to sell those to other businesses. That would be the growth one. The other one would be the buyout where they're more clo- they're buying a business, essentially dressing it up, uh, reducing expenses, increasing return on equity, and then selling it as opposed to growing the business or merging it p- perhaps with another business. The returns on private equity uh, have been spectacular. The question is, are they going to be spectacular in the future? Because one of the things that drove the bond market and the real estate market also was a huge tailwind for private equity, and I might add for venture capital. That was very low, historically low interest rates, and that's not where we are today, and I don't think we can count on going back to a zero or a 1% Fed funds rate. And there's been hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars flowing to private equity. And in my experience, when that happens, it's only logical that prices for those businesses that they're buying 
go up, which means the returns have to go down. That's not that I'm opposed to private equity, but I think it's frankly either in, impossible or probably inappropriate for individual investors. Uh, I happen to have the honor to serve on a major university endowment board, a Big Ten university, and uh, we've, I'm on the investment committee, and we've invested in private equity, and I've learned a lot about it. But we're investing in what are called small pieces of $25 million a piece. And what we're learning is that the big players, the Blackstones and the KKRs, um, they, they're raising money at 200 or $250 million a clip, and they've got to put that money to work. And they have to put it to work in larger businesses because of the amount of capital they have. And that if you look over over the last five and ten years at the returns in private equity, the dispersion between the top quartile and the fourth quartile is huge, really, really big. So not only do you have to have a lot of money to get in, but you could have get in and be in a bottom quartile or a top quartile performance. Very, very difficult for an individual investor to do his or her due diligence. And they are illiquid. One of the reasons there's higher returns is what the academics call the illiquidity premium. You should earn more money, just like investing in investment real estate. It's an illiquid asset. There ought to be a premium because you can't call up somebody and liquidate the office building like you can liquidate your Vanguard exchange-traded fund. So there ought to be a liquidity premium. And I must also say, over my many decades of, of my career where I've managed to lose money in virtually every conceivable asset class, that is, when, when things show up for the individual investor, like private equity, and I remember back 40-plus years ago, oil and gas, Believe me, the good deals, you're not going to see the best deals because the people with the most money are going to see the best deals. If, you're, if you want to raise money for private equity, do you want to raise it in $50,000 pieces or $100,000 pieces, or would you prefer to raise it in $25 million pieces? The answer is it's a lot simpler to do it with the larger. So when you as an individual look at it, I would say that probably a bad thing to do. Now, there's a real movement to, if you will, democratize private equity. And there are big firms like Blackstone that are doing this. And um, they have <clears throat> they didn't get to be that big by, by having bad returns. I think you have to have modest expectations. You have to believe that it'll outperform your stock portfolio because if it didn't, then there's no reason to do it because of that liquidity premium. So there's a lot of reasons there to think about it and to be skeptical. And I don't think you can find an attractive one on your own. And I think if you go with a large general partner, uh, which is fine, you're going to get diversification because they're going to have your money in a variety of different businesses. But that also means you'll have lower returns, but you will have lower risks. So I would just say be very, very careful. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. This is Bob from Bastrop. I just realized that putting 15% of my income 
into a traditional 401k results in my Social Security to be lowered by that 15% because my lifetime annual earnings are lower than my gross income. Is that correct? I earn below the 130000 or whatever the Social Security annual limit is. So, me always, as I always do, I'm not a Social Security expert. I'm certainly not an accountant. But your Social Security earnings come from your, from your filings, from your tax returns. And when you contribute to an employer-sponsored 401k plan on a pre-tax basis, then one of the benefits of doing that is you don't pay income tax on that, and it's not included in your taxable income. So when your Social Security benefit is calculated, it's my understanding calculated on your taxable income. I don't know how, unless the government mandated it, I don't know how the Social Security people would know how much you're putting into your 401k, and, and frankly, you can vary that as well. So the answer is, I'd still put, even though you didn't ask it this way, I'd still put money in the 401k. I don't think there's any question about that, and I'd certainly put money in to get the employer match if one is available. But yes, I would think over time it would reduce your taxable income, and that's the number on which your Social Security benefit is calculated. Thanks. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. And while we are waiting for that, I put together some New Year's resolutions that I think are worth considering as it regards financial and investment planning. Probably in no order, but these are the ones that came to my mind. First is have realistic investment return expectations. So I was visiting with a person last week, and he said to me that his expectation for his stock portfolio was 8 to 10% per year. And I remember, because I'm an old guy too, I remember meeting with a representative of a mutual fund company many, many years ago. In fact, it was probably 1997, And he said, you know, look at your portfolio. Now, compound that at 10%, and that doubles in seven years. And I thought to myself, well, that certainly seems reasonable. Because in 1997, we didn't know it, but we were in the middle of the greatest bull market for U.S. stocks in our lifetime, where the S&P 500 was up over 20% a year for five consecutive years. So we're two years in, 1995-1996, two years into this five-year bull market where we're making these terrific returns in the stock market. And so thinking 10% as we did our planning for retirement planning, et cetera, et cetera, seemed perfectly reasonable. Well, the next two years, 1998 and 1999, where absolutely 10% seemed conservative, then the stock market peaked in March of 2000 and dropped, I think, about 40% bottoming in September of 2002. But the NASDAQ, which is where a lot of the so-called dot-com companies were, peaked in March of 2000. And it took 15 years, that's right, 15 years for that to come back. So I think the first thing you want to do in your planning is have realistic expectations. By that, I mean probably lower rather than higher. 
Plus, that also creates a mandate for you to save and invest more. If your future expected return is 6% rather than 8, 9, or 10%, then you're going to have to be sure that your asset allocation and your savings rates match up with that. Because if you retire and you've got a million dollars in your 401k or IRA rollover, and you think you can take $75,000 or $80,000 a year out, and you're 65 years old, you're thinking incorrectly. You have That's too big a withdrawal rate. So I think having realistic investment return expectations is a really important thing as you think about 2024. It's time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. Call or text 512-836-0590 and stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here for another half hour. When you have a question, call or text 512 836 you may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience, download previous broadcasts, or go to the SoundCloud and download those broadcasts as well without the commercials. It's a free app. And this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show, 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hello, Carl. Thanks for your always great show. You're welcome. I'm looking at a mutual fund that also has an exchange-traded fund version of it. What am I missing? Because to me, it seems like it would always be better to invest in the ETF versus a mutual fund. The answer is probably, but it depends. So if you're looking at a passive, so let's suppose you're looking at an S&P 500 and you can buy the opened-end fund. Let's just use Vanguard. As everyone knows, I make no recommendations on Money Talk, but that's a big provider of index funds. So let's suppose you could buy the Vanguard index fund as an opened-end 40-act fund that trades throughout the day, but the price you pay when you buy it is the value of the portfolio at the end of the day, and the price you get when you sell it is the value of the portfolio at the end of the day. That's called net asset value versus the exchange-traded fund where it trades throughout the day and the price you pay is the value of that portfolio at that moment. And when you sell, the price you receive is the value of that portfolio at that moment. It trades on an exchange, hence the name exchange-traded fund. Exchange-traded funds typically have two significant, well, three significant benefits. One's liquidity, which I just told you about if you're doing some kind of day trading strategy. The second one is that they're tax efficient. They seldom pay out, if they, again, we're talking about passive, pay out realized capital gains. And third, they have very low operating expenses. So if you're comparing, say, the Vanguard Index 500 open fund, say VFIX to VOO, the Vanguard S&P 500, or the SPY, the iShares S&P 500, I would agree with you with one caveat. If, you, if your custodian does not charge you a transaction fee, 
then yes, the ETF would be a better deal. Some custodians will charge a transaction fee. And if you're going to be an active investor buying and selling it, or say dollar cost averaging every 30 days, the open fund may end up being a little cheaper for you. Now, full stop. Because of the popularity of exchange-traded funds, more and more actively managed stock funds and bond funds are being offered in an exchange-traded fund wrapper, if you will. And in just listening to, visiting with, and interviewing various portfolio managers, I have yet to find a portfolio manager of an actively managed equity fund who has said to me, Carl, our ETF is exactly the same portfolio. And while I don't understand all of the technical reasons, or frankly, any of the technical reasons, what I do know is you're not comparing apples to apples. You're not getting the same thing. I know, for example, in, say, let's say trend following and managed futures, that I've talked to managed futures operators who offer an ETF, but it has fewer strategies in it than the one that's the open-end fund. So you want if it's actively managed, before you buy the ETF instead of the actively managed fund, be sure you understand the distinction in the portfolio. If it's some kind of passive index, the Russell 1000 or the Russell 3000 growth or the NASDAQ or whatever, then based on what I said, I think the ETF is a better deal. Thanks for, thanks for your text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Calvin, you're on the air. How may I help? Oh, hi there. I hope you're hi. doing well on this fine afternoon. I am. Um, thank you. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is in reference to the Social Security uh, mm-hmm. contribution, or tax, yes. I should say, yes. and, the, uh, yeah. and the 401K that the guy called about. Yeah. Um, I was in similar situations as him uh, a few years ago, and I looked into it, and what I found is Social Security on the bottom end, the bottom earner end of Social Security, if you're making minimum wage, you work for 35 years, the max, you're going to get about, at the time, this was true, and I think it's still true, about 90% of your income, of your of your monthly income during the time you have Social Security. But as you get higher yes. into the ranks, when you're up at the top and you've worked, well, let's just say you've made 100, I, I forgot the top limit now, but let's say you've made 180000 the equivalent yeah. every year for 35 years, and you're right. at the maximum of Social Security. Right. It's only programmed to pay you 35% back of what, based on the salary that you put in. Okay. So the stuff you're losing at the very top end there, like he is, is not going to make as much as as much difference as you might think. Sure. Sure. Um, that, yeah, that I don't have the exact numbers in front of yeah. me, and uh, again, yeah. I'm not an accountant, I'm not a tax sure. lawyer, but I've gone sure. through the spreadsheets on this. Right. Um, but one more thing to add to that, sure. if his company, if he is concerned about that, and he wants to get that, what I found to be a very sure. small amount additional in Social Security, almost all the companies around now, uh, even my laggard company, has gotten a 401k, the Roth 401k yes. in place, yes. where you pay up front. And especially if you're younger, that's probably a really good thing to look at right there. Pay the yeah, tax yeah. right up front. Yeah, yeah. I think you're yeah. right. I mean, I, I, I can tell you... Having been around this investment world for 45 years, I encounter people who have put all their money in pre-tax accounts, and then they retire, 
and they've done such a good job, they don't need all the money, and they're frustrated because they have to take money out because of the required minimum distribution, when in fact, if they had the Roth option, they don't have the required minimum distribution. They can take it once they qualify, whenever they want, and not pay any income tax. So I agree with you, Calvin. I think if people are willing to forego the tax deduction, the Roth 401k is a terrific idea. Yep. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks. You you bet. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. Anthony here, a caller over the years. Regarding the Social Security benefits question, well, here we go. Box one of your W-2 shows your wages subject to income tax after 401k contributions. In box three shows your social security wages, which is the amount prior to your 401 contribution. Who knew? Therefore, donating to your 401k plan does not reduce your social security benefits. You do pay social security tax on your 401k contributions though. Really? Huh? Well, I don't know. I'm not going to opine on that because that's above my pay grade. Thank you a lot. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. We're coming up on our last quarter hour. If you've been listening and thinking of calling or texting, do so now at 512-836-0590. Stick around. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Good time to call or text. We'll be now before we go off the air in about the next 13 minutes. 512-836-0590. Kevin, you're on the air. How may I help? Hey, Carl. Uh, I have a couple quick questions. Uh, First one is, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about investing in digital or cryptocurrencies? And the second one is, um, when you take withdrawals from an IRA, are those taxed at uh, your – is that income tax or capital gains tax or both? Sure. So when you take, I'm going to answer your second question first. It's a, it's a more factual one. That is, when you take money out of your IRA, unless some of the contributions were after-tax contributions, if the contributions to the IRA were pre-tax, then 100% of the withdrawals are subject to income tax and not capital gains tax. If some of the contributions were after tax, then a proportional part of the withdrawal is treated as a return of your own after-tax investment, is not subject to income tax, and the balance is. But there's no capital gains treatment whatsoever on withdrawals from IRAs. So for the vast majority of people who I encounter, when money comes out of the IRA, it is subject to income tax. Now, let's okay. talk okay, good. Now let's talk about digital and cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. This is a really controversial area. Um, and I just the fact that you're asking it tells me that, that you have an interest in it. There's it it's not simple because there are lots of ways in which 
uh, it's controversial, one of which is the dark nature of it that, that according to the Wall Street Journal and other reputable financial uh, aspects of the press, that there can be a lot of illegal activity being uh, occurring with cryptocurrency because it can't be traced. So you're getting, so to speak, in bed with some very bad actors. So you have to think about that. The other thing is it's an extremely volatile asset. So it's not really a currency in the sense of the dollar or the yen or the euro uh, is, uh, or, or, or sterling is a, is a currency. So the value, is, the value is determined by supply and demand. So you take the one that is the most well-known, Bitcoin, and it's, can, you know, as you probably know, it can drop or go up 30, 40, 50 percent. So I would say to you and to anybody, if you decide to put money into cryptocurrency, understand that you're doing it as an investment and not using it as a currency because of its volatility. Understand that I think in the fullness of time that there will be government intervention to the extent possible because some of it's being used for criminal and nefarious activities. And if you say, okay, I understand there are criminals involved in cryptocurrency. I'm not a criminal and I want to either invest or speculate, then keep it to a very small portion of your overall assets. And knowing that it's so volatile and it can drop so sharply and rise so sharply, take a three to five year time horizon on it. I think you're going to find uh, taxing authorities around the world are going to start looking and mandating that custodians are going to have to do like they do with stocks and bonds and mutual funds and report transactions. We're not there yet. So I think it's okay within those boundaries, in my view, Kevin. Yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion since Larry Fink said recently that it could be an escape to safety. Yeah, it could be, but you got If you look at the, if, if you really want the escape to safety, then we both know that if you go over the last couple thousand years, it's really been gold. It hasn't been. It hasn't been anything else because you can't manufacture more of it. And because of that, that you have a limited supply. And today you can buy it without having to own coins or bullion by owning, the, owning it through an exchange-traded fund, which gives you daily liquidity. And no matter what happens to the stock market or the bond market, they still own the gold. And so I like that better because I think it is an escape hatch relative to the cryptocurrency. Understood. Thank you, Carl. Okay, thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. So here's another one of my New Year's resolutions. Reducing debt has the same impact on your balance sheet as increasing assets. What do I mean? I had a conversation this afternoon with a friend in Pennsylvania, and he has a good job. Uh, and uh, he's 53, and his wife's 62, and they have two kids finishing college, uh, and he has a mortgage and a car note and a home and equity line of credit, uh, and uh, the third car, uh, which they need because they got these two uh, college-age kids nearby, uh, the engine blew up, and he needs to get another car. And he said, I've been driving 
used cars, and I really, really would love to have a new car. And he said, I'd really like to, you know, he said, I don't want to buy really expensive, but, you know, $50,000. And, of course, I'm old enough to remember when you could buy a house for $50,000. And so we had a conversation about that. And I said, so I'm guessing your objective, Chris, is to be financially independent. He said, you bet. And I said, you'd like to retire sooner rather than later because your wife's several years older than you are. He said, yes, that's right. And I said, so every dollar that you don't put in your retirement savings and investments and you have to pay an interest and the debt that you take on is going to lengthen the time before you're going to be financially independent. Because if you put $20,000 in your 401k and you borrow $20,000, the net result to your balance sheet is zero. Now, why is that important? Because once you retire, you don't have earned income in the sense of from your own activities. You have perhaps Social Security. You'll have perhaps a defined benefit pension plan, although those are getting fewer and further between. Uh, It's just pretty much now government employees, education people, but people in the private sector seldom have pensions. And then you have your savings. And you have to plan on taking a modest amount from your savings because you don't know what's going to happen to the cost of living. And so you need to be sure that you don't end up without any money because you took too much out of that. So reducing your liabilities is a key component of of getting to financial independence. You want to be, when you retire, debt-free. You don't want to have auto debt. You don't want to have a HELOC. You don't want to have a mortgage because then you have control over your expenses. Sure, you have mandatory expenses. You've got to pay the utilities, et cetera, et cetera. But you have much, much more flexibility. So as a result, what I'm saying then is that you having reducing debt has the same impact on your balance sheet as increasing an asset. Oh, here's an interesting text. By the way, I'm well, I'm not going to give the numbers. You know them. What is the optimum age to take Social Security? Terrific question. So you can take it at 62. Sadly, a lot of people do that. You can take it at full retirement age, which is a function of the year in which you were born. So probably for most listeners around age 67, or you have to take it at age 70. So from a financial planning standpoint, you end up having to think about your life expectancy and uh, also your other sources of retirement income. The uh, benefit of postponing it until 70 is that from full retirement age until the mandatory payment at age 70, the benefit grows at 8% per year. And there's certainly no investment that you can make that grows at 8% per year. Now, You can say, well, that's fine, Carl, but I've run the numbers and I've got to live to be 83 before I get money ahead if I wait till I'm 70. And I don't think I'm going to live that long, so I'm going to take it earlier. Fine. You have to put those kinds of circumstances in. But if you can afford to postpone the Social Security, then in my view, you should. Also, if you earn more than your spouse 
and you predecease your spouse, he or she's going to get your, the higher of the two Social Security benefits. My recollection is it's the full retirement age Social Security benefit, not the age 70, but I'm not positive about that. So I would say for, for many people, you're almost better off in bridging that period of time between retirement and full retirement age that what you do is draw a little more aggressively from your retirement savings. Then when Social Security kicks in, you reduce the withdrawals from your retirement savings. And while it's not fun to hear this, the longer you work, the better off you are because you're going to be more financially independent. And, you know, it's not that you have to necessarily, depending on the nature of what you do professionally, that you necessarily have to work, 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 and then quit. You can work and you can reduce and you can make money in other ways and still stay active and postpone taking Social Security. So the optimum age, so there's a lot of personal things there, but certainly 62 is not the optimum age for for anybody, in my view, unless they just don't have anything else to live on. I wouldn't do it at 62. It's either the full retirement age or age 70. Thanks for the text. Well, we're down to the last couple of minutes. What was my next, ah, here's my next New Year's resolution. It's not really a resolution. A home is not an investment. Now, I'm gonna, before you run screaming from the room, I am a firm believer for people who can afford it and want to, to have a, own their own home. I own my own home. My wife and I own our own home. But I would tell you, I don't view it as an investment. Why? Because even though we live in Central Texas, and even though we've owned this home for 22 years, and it's appreciated in value, it's an illiquid asset. We can't sell off a bedroom if we need an extra $50,000. And if we sell this, we don't want to live in our car. So we got to live someplace else. Furthermore, as you get older, what happens if one of us needs additional health care aid? That actually increases the cost of living. We need to have the ability to let the asset alone, let it grow, but it's not an investment. Granted, the equity is growing because we've paid off the mortgage. But when people tell me my best investment has been a house, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a way to think about it. Because if you sell your house, you've got to live someplace else. If you pay cash for that next place, then you don't have that much money left for retirement saving and investment. So that's another New Year's thing to think about. Well, been a lot of fun this afternoon. I want to thank Garrett for doing his usual terrific job. I want to thank you for listening. And as always, remind you that next Saturday, after the news at 4, tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 